Welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR.com and WRCR Radio. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County. Today, I'll be speaking with Ralph Blauvelt, who has just published a new book entitled 400 Years in America, 17th Century Immigrant Ancestors. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Blauvelt House, located at 20 Zucker Road in New City, New York. We're listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and we are a designated New York State Path Through History site. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a private, non-profit institution, not a county or state agency. And we depend on charitable contributions to fulfill our educational and preservation mission. And we hope you will consider making a financial contribution or becoming a member of the Historical Society of Rockland County. You can learn more by visiting our website at rocklandhistory.org. And we'd love to count our radio listeners as financial supporters. The Historical Society is again open in accordance with the guidelines provided by the New York State Health Department and the CDC. So visit the History Center anytime. You can find out about ours and how you visit by visiting our website at rocklandhistory.org. Just as a reminder, this is a call-in show. We'll take your calls if you have a comment or a question. The studio line is 845-429-1700. That number again, 845-429-1700. My guest today is Ralph Blauvelt, who was born and raised here in Rockland County. He graduated from Spring Valley High School in 1960, and by 1967, he had received the BM and MM degrees from Manhattan School of Music in New York. He's had an extensive career in music as a composer and performer, both here in America and overseas, and he has produced numerous recordings and has written three books about his music. In addition to this extraordinary career in music, Ralph was the genealogist for the Association for Blavelt Descendants from 1994 to 2004. And during that time and since, he wrote numerous genealogy and family history articles, and many are included in his book entitled A Blavelt Descendant, Researching Family History, which was published in 2016. His most recent book, 400 Years in America, documents the lives of selected ancestors who were among the first to emigrate to the Dutch colony of New Netherland in the 17th century and who were the founders of the city that became New York. So welcome, Ralph, to Crossroads of Rockland History. Thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So before we begin speaking about your new book, I'd love for you to take just a few moments and tell us a little bit about the Association of Blavelt Descendants and your work doing research for that organization. Uh, Well, the Association of Blavelt Descendants, or ABD for short, was founded in 1926, and we just had our 96th annual reunion in September. The 95th and 96th reunions were virtual on Zoom, but we still had them. (laughs) My wife Frances and I joined the ABD in 1976, and we became members of the executive board in 1982. Our first research project was to determine 
If an old graveyard on Paskak Road near Scotland Hill Road was a community cemetery or a family cemetery, the Clarkstown Planning Board had contacted DABD because several Blauvelts were buried there, including a Revolutionary War veteran. If the graveyard was a community cemetery, the town of Clarkstown was responsible for its preservation and upkeep. But if it was a family cemetery, the landowner was responsible. After researching the land records and the families living in the area, Francis and I determined that the graveyard was, a, in fact, a community cemetery. Blauvelts lived and owned land in the area, but never owned the property of the graveyard. A few years later, in uh, 1989, I accepted the challenge of transferring the ABD genealogical files to a computer-based system. Uh, this required extensive research because the ABD files were incomplete and contained many errors. I became the ABD genealogist in 94, as you mentioned, and continued through 2004. So this group, the Association for Blavelt Descendants, has an incredibly large membership, and it's all over, right? Yes, there have been thousands of members over the years. I can remember in the 1980s when there were over 700 active dues-paying members. The current active members number about 460, and they come from all over the U.S. It is important to realize that the ABD maintains the records of female descendants and their families. For this reason, most of the current members do not carry the Blauvelt surname. They are members of the association because they have a Blauvelt in their ancestry. Interesting. So the subject of genealogy seems to be of interest to most history enthusiasts. Have you always been interested in genealogy? Uh, not always. <laughs> But when I was an undergraduate at Manhattan School of Music, I was embarrassed on two occasions because I didn't know my family history. In 1960, I was registering for the first time at the school, and one of the administrators asked me if I knew anything about the Blauvelt descendant who had married John Kennedy, the Democratic nominee for President of the United States. Yeah, that was in, you know, that was in September, and the, the election was in November. But I didn't know anything about it. I was just a country boy from Rockland County. <laughs> <laughs> then a few years later, I got a part-time job as a page in the music division of New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street. In a casual conversation with the head of the department, he asked me if I might be related to the early 20th century opera diva uh, Lillian Evans Blauvelt. Again, I had to plead ignorance. My embarrassment spurred my curiosity. I learned later that I am related to Lillian Evans Blauvelt. We both descend from an Isaac Blauvelt and Sarah Johnson, and we share the same ancestors with Edward Hopper, my third cousin once removed. So 2024 marks the 400th anniversary of the first permanent settlers of New Netherland, hence the title of your book. So talk a little bit about what we mean when we say New Netherland and what happened in 1624 that is this important milestone. New Netherland was the name of the Dutch colony along the east coast of North America that extended from uh, the Delaware River <coughs> on the south 
to the Connecticut River on the east and as far north along the Hudson River to today's Albany, New York. This colony and others in South America and the Caribbean were administered by the Dutch West India Company in the Netherlands. What happened in 1624? Well, let me read from the preface of my book, quote, in the spring of 1624, the Eindracht, a small ship from the Netherlands, entered New York Harbor. Among its passengers were the first permanent settlers of New Netherland. A few months later, another ship, the New Netherland, arrived with more settlers destined for the Dutch colony in North America. The year 16, this year, 1624, marks the 400-year anniversary of these events. Those first settlers called their new home New Amsterdam, which is what we would pinpoint now as the tip of the island of Manhattan, correct? Yes, this, the settlement uh, at the southern tip of Manhattan, south of today's Wall Street, was called New Amsterdam. It was like the, the capital of the New Netherland colony. And although there were dozens of families on the ship, only four are known to have survived, to have descendants that we know about. Who were these people who made their way in 1624? The names of the first four families were Rapalia, Vigna, Montfort, and Detrio. I am a descendant of the first three families. All were Walloons. Talk a little bit about who Walloons were. The Walloons were members of a French-speaking people, originally of Celtic origin, inhabiting southern and southeastern Belgium and adjacent regions of France. In the years before and after 1600, many Walloons fled their homeland in the wake of war and religious intolerance. Most emigrated to the Netherlands or to England. Many ended up in Leiden, where the English pilgrims lived before they sailed on the Mayflower to New England. And by the way, their, their original des destination was the Hudson River area. Is that right? Yeah. The Walloons and other Dutch residents were inspired by the pilgrims to organize a similar plan of emigration. You know, so many immigrants who come to America, there is an element of needing religious freedom, and that really was the case with these people, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. I mean, that's, they, <laughs> that's why they went to the Netherlands and, uh, and, and then saw this opportunity to maybe start a new life with, with religious freedom. And they went on that voyage, which, you know, an amazing, difficult voyage, right? Yes, yes. You're listening to WRCR and Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County. I'm speaking with Ralph Blauvelt, who has just published a new book entitled 400 Years in America, 17th Century Immigrant Ancestors. We are live today, so if you have a comment or a question, please feel free to call us. The studio line is 845-429-1700. That number again, 845 845- for 29-1700. This book is extraordinary. The research you've done is extensive. Can you describe for us how you went about this effort and when you started this project? Well, I had been 
collecting information for years on my non-Blauvelt ancestors. But it was in 2019, after I published my last uh, music CD, and with immigrants being a hot topic in the news and getting a bad name, that I decided to write about my 17th century immigrant ancestors within the context of the history of the city that became New York. One of my initial problems was limiting the subject matter of the book. My research revealed that I had over 220 17th century immigrant ancestors. I had to make some cuts. I certainly wanted to include my paternal line ancestor, Garrett Hendrickson Blauvelt, who arrived in 1641. So I decided to limit the book to Garrett and to the immigrants who came before him. This left me with about 55 immigrant ancestors to include in the book. Many of the other ancestors are mentioned in the book in relation to those 55, but it meant I had to eliminate detailed discussions of a lot of families I had hoped to include. Brinkerhoff, Haring, Demarest, Vanderbilt, Hopper, Fonder, Bokert, Berthoff, Tallman, Cooper, and others from A to Z, Ackerman, to Zabriskie. Mm -hmm. And those are names that are very familiar to yes, people here in Rockland and certainly, certainly in northern New Jersey as right. well. So you must have reviewed some very interesting documents when you were doing this research. Tell us a little bit about those. Yes, I prepared this. I, I'll tell you about a document that is interesting in itself, but it also reflects upon the government of New Netherland in general. William Kieft arrived at New Amsterdam on March 28, 1638, to assume his position as director of the New Netherland for the West India Company. A few days later, on April 1st, he appointed Cornelis van Tienhoven, who had been in the colony since uh, 1633, to be his secretary and right-hand man. Then a week later, on April 8th, William Kieft presided over his first meeting of the Council of New Netherland. The Council minutes were, quote, the executive, legislative, and judicial proceedings of the Director General and Council of New Netherland, unquote. And the first order of business on that day, and I'll quote it, the Honorable Director Kieft and Council, having considered the small number of, of councillors, have deemed it necessary to choose an experienced person to strengthen their number and in consideration of the ability of Dr. Johannes de la Montagna, the said Montagna has therefore been appointed by us a political council of New Netherland at 35 florins a month, commencing on the date thereof. <laughs> so he had to get a counselor before he started business. <laughs> sounds like a good plan, and, I think. <laughs> it, all sounds, it all sounds serious and official, as it should. However, this first act of the Director General and the Council of New Netherland is comical when you understand the circumstances. When Keith appointed Dr. Montagna, there were no other counselors on the council. There was certainly uh, a, a small number, <laughs> zero. <laughs> In fact, there are only four officials in the room. Director Kieft, Secretary Tienhoven, the Sheriff Ulrich Lupold, and the newly appointed Montagna. I have a friend, Joe Deutsch, who reads the old New Netherland Council Minutes for entertainment. <laughs> from, 
from the perspective of a lawyer, he finds them amusing. I'm sure they are. <laughs> but to follow up on, on this first act of William Kieft, from 1638 till the end of his tenure in 1647, when Stuyvesant came, Director Kieft appointed Dr. Johannes La Montagna as the sole member of his council, mm -hmm. other than the non-voting secretary and sheriff. If there was a difference of opinion between Kieft and Montagna, the director's vote overruled the councillors. <laughs> as you can see, all the branches of government in New Netherland were vested in one person. It was a classic autocracy. Yeah, wow, very interesting. <laughs> So one of the things that I found curious, the way the Dutch use names, first names, surnames, it's confusing, and I wonder if that's something you encountered and how you dealt with this when you were doing your research. Well, I encountered the use of patronymics all the time. Patronymics is the practice of using the father's first name to identify a person rather than using the father's surname. For example, Garrett Hendrickson simply means Garrett, son of Hendrick. Garrett's first son, following the traditional naming pattern, was named Hendrick Garretson after the paternal grandfather, in, in this case Hendrick, followed by the patronymic Garretson, son of Garrett. The second son was named Lambert Garretson after the maternal grandfather, Lambert, and followed by the patronymic Garretson. It was the common practice among the New Netherland families to identify themselves by their patronymic. This was true for families who had, in fact, an old world surname, as well as those who did not. For example, Jan Peterson, the progenitor of the Haring family in America, Arian Lambertson, the progenitor of the Dutch family of New York, and of course, Garrett Hendrickson, ancestor of the Blauvelts. It takes some getting used to, but once you understand the naming conventions, it can be very useful in determining family relationships. And the, the use of patronymics is common throughout the world. When I was studying in Germany, I met a Sudanese medical student. He was named according to Arabic patronymics. He had his own first name, which was Osman, and his second name was his father's first name, and his third name was his grandfather's first name. So you have like a history of the wow, family like in a, the name. Exactly, right in his name. <laughs> in Iceland today, and I just learned this preparing for the show, <laughs> the use of patronymics or even matronymics using the mother's name is preferred to the, to the use of a fixed surname. Very interesting. How did the Blauvelts end up in Rockland County? Well, the Tapan Patent, in short, <laughs> in, in, in 1682, 16 men joined together to purchase a tract of land on the west side of the Hudson River that became known as the Tapan Patent. The property straddled the current border between Bergen County, New Jersey, and Rockland, New York, and contained roughly 16,000 acres. Three dominant families controlled eight of the 16 shares in the property. These were the Harrings, the Smiths, and the Blauvelts, the three families I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Seven of the eight surviving children of Garrett Hendrickson, five brothers and two sisters, settled in the Tapan Patent. Within two generations, 
and the intermarriage of, of the Japan families, most of the inhabitants of the community were descendants of these three families. Like many others, I am a descendant of all three. Wow, that's amazing. Unlike in the English tradition, in the Dutch tradition, girls, female descendants, can inherit... It's very different than the way the English... Oh, yes. The, with the English, uh, the, it's the, the eldest son gets everything. Right, right. <laughs> but in the Dutch, uh, the, the men and women were treated equally. And women were allowed to own property and conduct business. It was pretty... Um, Much more egalitarian way to yes. divide your estate than ended yes, up happening definitely. when the British came. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that this book will be intriguing to so many Blavelt descendants. What do you think? Interesting to Blavelt descendants, but much more than Blavelt descendants, because Garrett Hendrickson Blavelt is just one of the 50-odd ancestors that I discuss in the book. And these other immigrants were the ancestors of an untold number of American families. So if you're interested in the early history of New York, even if you're not interested in, in genealogy. Most definitely. I mean, there's so much in here. It's, it's fantastic. What were some of the most unusual things you found while doing your research? Well, perhaps not unusual, but a surprise revelation for me when I learned the derivation of a word that I knew but didn't often use. Immigrant ancestor Cornelis Ertsen von Skyk had a plantation on the East River just south and west of the plantation of Jacobus von Corlaer. Corlaer's property jutted out into the East River, and the landmark came to be called Corlaer's Hook. It is just south of today's Williamsburg Bridge. Okay. The projection into the East River, called Corlaer's Hook, was an important landmark for navigators for 300 years. And it was, it was mentioned in uh, Melville's Moby Dick, by the late 1700s, Corlaire's Hook had become a navy yard and shipyard, giving way to sailors and immigrant shipbuilders who moved their families into the area. The first tenement in the city was built here in 1833. As more new Americans poured into the neighborhood, bars and brothels followed. Wow. By the 19th century, Corlaire's Hook, colloquially called the Hook, was a notorious slum. I'm going to read a, a short passage from Gotham, a book by Edwin G. Burroughs and Mike Wallace, and I quote it in my book, quote, At Corlaire's Hook, adjacent to the shipyards, coal dumps, and ironworks, droves of streetwalkers brazenly solicited industrial workers, sailors, and Brooklyn Ferry commuters. So notorious was the Hook's reputation as a site for prostitution, that the local sex workers were called hookers. Oh my goodness. Generating a new <laughs> moniker for the trade. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> wow, I never knew that. Well, what a great discovery. So we do have a caller. So uh -huh. we're gonna say good morning, you're on the air. We have just a brief moment, so please share your question with us. I love this, this, this morning, it's been wonderful. But uh, you started out talking about the cemetery and I would like to know about the, um, was the cemetery segregated? Are there former slaves buried there? Or did they have their own burial ground? And do you know anything about the history of, of the slave, uh, the, the, what happened to them? 
I don't remember that there were any slaves buried in that particular uh, cemetery. Uh, I do know that there were, uh, there was uh, one of the Scottish settlers, that's why we call it Scotland Hill Road, they, they, they eventually moved out, went further upstate, but there was a, a community of Scottish in the area and, and there were a couple of them there besides from the other families in the area. But I, I don't know of any slaves in, in that area. And can you tell me if the reason that slaves were not buried in the same cemeteries as the white settlers, is that because they were not considered Christian? I don't think I can answer that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you can't answer everything. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate your question. We'll do some more research and we'll try to yeah. find that. Thank you so much for calling in. Have Thank a great you. day. You too. Uh, Ralph, for people interested in getting the book, how can one purchase it? Well, I, I published the book through lulu.com, but the book is available on Amazon and, and other digital outlets and in bookstores. Uh, it might not be in stock, but you can order it through any bookstore. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Ralph Blauvelt. The new book is called 400 Years in America, 17th Century Immigrant Ancestors. And as Ralph said, the book is available wherever fine books are sold. Please remember that everything we talked about, as well as a recording of this broadcast, will be available on our website, rocklandhistory.org. I hope you'll tune in to the next Crossroads of Rockland History, the third Monday in November, right after the morning show. You can visit the Historical Society's website to find out about upcoming events and programs. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we have a growing group of friends and fans. You can find us tweeting on Twitter, blogging on Tumblr, and posting on Instagram. And don't forget that many of our broadcasts are archived at rocklandhistory.org, and they are available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. I'm Claire Sheridan. Thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So, subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Historical Society of Rockland County's website and want to get each new episode of Crossroads of Rockland History delivered to you, then download your favorite podcast app, then search for Crossroads of Rockland History, and hit subscribe. We release every third Monday of the month. Thanks for listening. <laughs>